Section 8 of Memoirs of Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 6. 1553 and 1554. The conduct of Elizabeth during the late alarming crisis earned for her from Mary, during the first days of her reign, some demonstration of sisterly affection. She caused her to bear her company in her public entry into London, kindly detained her for a time near her own person, and seemed to have consigned forever to an equitable oblivion all the mortifications and heart-burnings of which the child of Anne Boleyn had been the innocent occasion to her in times past, and under circumstances which could never more return. In the splendid procession which attended Her Majesty from the Tower to Whitehall, previously to her coronation on October 1st, 1553, the royal chariot, sumptuously covered with cloth of tissue, and drawn by six horses with trappings of the same material, was immediately followed by another, likewise drawn by six horses and covered with cloth of silver, in which sat the Princess Elizabeth and the Lady Anne of Cleves, who took place in this ceremony as the adopted sister of Henry the Eighth. But notwithstanding these fair appearances, the rancorous feelings of Mary's heart with respect to her sister were only repressed or disguised, not eradicated, and it was not long before a new subject of jealousy caused them to revive in all their pristine energy. Amongst the state prisoners committed to the Tower by Henry the Eighth, whose liberation his executors had resisted during the whole reign of Edward, but whom it was Mary's first act of royalty to release and reinstate in their offices or honours, was Edward Courtney, son of the unfortunate Marquis of Exeter. From the age of fourteen to that of six-and-twenty, this victim of tyranny had been doomed to expiate, in a captivity which threatened to be perpetual, the involuntary offence of inheriting through an attainted father the blood of the fourth Edward. To the surprise and admiration of the court, he now issued forth a comely and accomplished gentleman, deeply versed in the literature of the age, skilled in music, and still more so in the art of painting, which had formed the chief solace of his long seclusion, and graced with that polished elegance of manners, the result, in most who possess it, of early intercourse with the world, and an assiduous imitation of the best examples, but to a few of her favourites, the free gift of nature herself. To all his prepossessing qualities was superadded that deep romantic kind of interest with which sufferings, long, unmerited, and extraordinary, never failed to invest a youthful sufferer. What wonder that Courtney speedily became the favourite of the nation! What wonder that even the severe bosom of Mary herself was touched with tenderness! With the eager zeal of the sentiment just awakened in her heart, she hastened to restore to her two amiable kinsmen the title of Earl of Devonshire, long hereditary in the illustrious house of Courtney, to which she added the whole of those patrimonial estates which the forfeiture of his father had vested in the crown. She went further, she lent a propitious ear to the whispered suggestion of her people, still secretly partial to the house of York, that an English prince of the blood was most worthy to share the throne of an English queen. It is even affirmed that hints were designedly thrown out to the young man himself of the impression which he had made upon her heart. But Courtney generously disdained, as it appears, to barter his affections for a crown. The youth, the talents, the graces of Elizabeth had inspired him with a preference which he was either unwilling or unable to conceal. Mary was left to vent her disappointment in resentment against the ill-fated object of her preference, and in every demonstration of a malignant jealousy towards her innocent and unprotected rival. By the first act of a Parliament summoned immediately after the coronation, Mary's birth had been pronounced legitimate, the marriage of her father and mother valid, and their divorce null and void. A stigma was thus unavoidably cast on the offspring of Henry's second marriage, and no sooner had Elizabeth incurred the displeasure of her sister 
than she was made to feel how far the consequences of this new declaration of the legislature might be made to extend. Notwithstanding the unrevoked succession act which rendered her next heir to the crown, she was forbidden to take place of the Countess of Lennox, or the Duchess of Suffolk, in the presence-chamber, and her friends were discountenanced or affronted obviously on her account. Her merit, her accomplishments, her insinuating manners, which attracted to her the admiration and attendance of the young nobility, and the favour of the nation, were so many crimes in the eyes of a sovereign who already began to feel her own unpopularity, and Elizabeth, who was not of a spirit to endure public and unmerited slights with tameness, found it at once the most dignified and safest course to seek, before the end of the year, the peaceful retirement of her house of Ashridge in Buckinghamshire. It was, however, made a condition of the leave of absence from court which she was obliged to solicit, that she should take with her Sir Thomas Pope and Sir John Gage, who were placed about her as inspectors and superintendents of her conduct, under the name of officers of her household. The marriage of Mary to Philip of Spain was now openly talked of. It was generally and justly unpopular. The Protestant party, whom the measures of the Queen had already filled with apprehensions, saw, in her desire of connecting herself yet more closely with the most bigoted royal family of Europe, a confirmation of their worst forebodings, and the tyranny of the Tudors had not yet so entirely crushed the spirit of Englishmen as to render them tamely acquiescent in the prospect of their country's becoming a province to Spain, subject to the sway of that detested people whose rapacity and violence and unexampled cruelty had filled both hemispheres with groans and execrations. The House of Commons petitioned the Queen against marrying a foreign prince. She replied by dissolving them in anger and all hope of putting a stop to the connection by legal means being thus precluded, measures of a more dangerous character began to be resorted to. Sir Thomas Wyatt of Allingham Castle in Kent, son of the poet, wit, and courtier of that name, had hitherto been distinguished by a zealous loyalty, and he is said to have been also a Catholic. Though allied in blood to the Dudleys, not only had he refused Northumberland his concurrence in the nomination of Jane Grey, but without waiting a moment to see which party would prevail, he had proclaimed Queen Mary in the market-place at Maidstone, for which instance of attachment he had received her thanks. But Wyatt had been employed during several years of his life in embassies to Spain, and the intimate acquaintance which he had thus acquired of the principles and practices of its court filled him with such horror of their introduction into his native country, that preferring patriotism to loyalty where their claims appeared incompatible, he incited his neighbours and friends to insurrection. In the same cause Sir Peter Carew and Sir Gawain his uncle endeavoured to raise the West, but with small success, and the attempts made by the Duke of Suffolk, lately pardoned and liberated, to arm his tenantry and retainers in Warwickshire and Leicestershire, proved still more futile. Notwithstanding, however, this want of cooperation, Wyatt's rebellion wore for some time a very formidable appearance. The London-trained bands sent out to oppose him went over to him in a body under Brett, their captain. The guards, almost the only regular troops in the kingdom, were chiefly Protestants, and therefore little trusted by the Queen, and it was known that the inhabitants of the metropolis for which he was in full march were in their hearts inclined to his cause. It was pretty well ascertained that the Earl of Devonshire had received an invitation to join the Western insurgents, and though he appeared to have rejected the proposal, he was arbitrarily remanded to his ancient abode in the tower. Elizabeth was naturally regarded under all these circumstances of alarm with extreme jealousy and suspicion. It was well known that her present compliance with the religion of the court was merely prudential, that she was the only hope of the Protestant party, a party equally formidable by zeal and by numbers, and which it was resolved to crush. 
it was more than suspected that though wyatt himself still professed an inviolable fidelity to the person of the reigning sovereign and strenuously declared the spanish match to be the sole grievance against which he had taken arms many of his partisans had been led by their religious zeal to entertain the further view of dethroning the queen in favour of her sister whom they desired to marry the earl of devonshire it was not proved that the princess herself had given any encouragement to these designs but sir james croft an adherent of wyatt's had lately visited ashridge and held conferences with some of her attendants and it had since been rumoured that she was projecting a removal to her manor of donnington castle in berkshire on the south side of the thames where nothing but a day's march through an open country would be interposed between her residence and the station of the kentish rebels policy seemed now to dictate the precaution of securing her person and the queen addressed to her accordingly the following letter Quote, right dear and entirely beloved sister we greet you well and whereas certain evil-disposed persons minding more the satisfaction of their own malicious and seditious minds than their duty of allegiance towards us have of late foully spread diverse lewd and untrue rumours and by that means and other devilish practices do travail to induce our good and loving subjects to an unnatural rebellion against god us and the tranquillity of our realm we tendering the surety of your person which might chance to be in some peril if any sudden tumult should arise where you now be or at donnington whither as we understand you are minded shortly to remove do therefore think expedient you should put yourself in good readiness with all convenient speed to make your repair hither to us which we pray you fail not to do assuring you that as you may most safely remain here so shall you be most heartily welcome to us and of your mind herein we pray you to return answer by this messenger given under our signet at our manor of st james the twenty sixth of january in the first year of our reign your loving sister mary the queen this summons found elizabeth confined to her bed by sickness and her officers sent a formal statement of the fact to the privy council praying that the delay of her appearance at court might not under such circumstances be misconstrued either with respect to her or to themselves m de noailles the french ambassador in some papers of his calls this quote, a favourable illness quote, to elizabeth quote, since adds he it seems likely to save mary from the crime of putting her sister to death by violence and truth it is that by detaining her in the country till the insurrection was effectually suppressed it preserved her from any sudden act of cruelty which the violence of the alarm might have prompted but other and perhaps greater dangers still awaited her a few days after the date of the foregoing letter wyatt entered westminster but with a force very inadequate to his undertaking he was repulsed in an attack on the palace and afterwards finding the gates of london closed against him and seeing his followers slain taken or flying in all directions he voluntarily surrendered himself to one of the queen's officers and was conveyed to the tower it was immediately given out that he had made a full discovery of his accomplices and named amongst them the princess and the earl of devonshire and on this pretext for it was probably no more three gentlemen were sent attended by a troop horse with peremptory orders to bring elizabeth back with them to london they reached her abode at ten o'clock at night and bursting into her sick-chamber in spite of the remonstrances of her ladies abruptly informed her of their errand affrighted at the summons she declared however her entire willingness to wait upon the queen her sister to whom she warmly protested her loyal attachment but she appealed to their own observation for the reality of her sickness and her utter inability to quit her chamber the gentlemen pleaded on the other side the urgency of their commission and said that they had brought the queen's litter for her conveyance two physicians were then called in who gave it as their opinion that she might be removed without danger to her life and on the morrow her journey commenced 
the departure of elizabeth from ashridge was attended by the tears and passionate lamentations of her afflicted household who naturally anticipated from such beginnings the worst that could befall her so extreme was her sickness aggravated doubtless by terror and dejection that even these stern conductors found themselves obliged to allow her no less than four nights rest in a journey of only twenty-nine miles between highgate and london her spirits were cheered by the appearance of a number of gentlemen who rode out to meet her as a public testimony of their sympathy and attachment and as she proceeded the general feeling was further manifested by crowds of people lining the waysides who flocked anxiously about her litter weeping and bewailing her aloud a manuscript chronicle of the time describes her passage on this occasion through smithfield and fleet street in a litter open on both sides with a hundred quote-unquote velvet coats after her and a hundred others quote, in coats of fine red guarded with velvet end quote. and with this train she passed through the queen's garden to the court this open countenancing of the princess by a formidable party in the capital itself seems to have disconcerted the plans of mary and her advisers and they contented themselves for the present with detaining her in a kind of honourable custody at whitehall here she underwent a strict examination by the privy council respecting wyatt's insurrection and the rising in the west under carew but she steadfastly protested her innocence and ignorance of all such designs and nothing coming out against her in about a fortnight she was dismissed and suffered to return to her own house her troubles however were as yet only beginning sir william st low one of her officers was apprehended as an adherent of wyatt's and this leader himself who had been respited for the purpose of working on his love of life and leading him to betray his confederates was still reported to accuse the princess an idle story was officiously circulated of his having conveyed to her in a bracelet the whole scheme of his plot and on march fifteenth she was again taken into custody and brought to hampton court soon after her arrival it was finally announced to her by a deputation of the council not without strong expressions of concern from several of the members that her majesty had determined on her committal to the tower till the matter could be further investigated bishop gardiner now a principal counsellor and two others came soon after and dismissing the princess's attendants supplied their place with some of the queen's and set a guard round the palace for that night the next day the earl of sussex and another lord were sent to announce to her that a barge was in readiness for her immediate conveyance to the tower she entreated first to be permitted to write to the queen and the earl of sussex assenting in spite of the angry opposition of his companion whose name is concealed by the tenderness of his contemporaries and undertaking to be himself the bearer of her letter she took the opportunity to repeat her protestations of innocence and loyalty concluding with an extraordinary vehemence of asseveration in these words quote, as for that traitor wyatt he might peradventure write me a letter but on my faith i never received any from him and as for the copy of my letter to the french king i pray god confound me eternally if ever i sent him word message token or letter by any means with respect to the last clause of this disavowal it may be fit to observe that there is indeed no proof that elizabeth ever returned any answer to the letters or messages of the french king but that it seems a well-authenticated fact that during some period of her adversity henry the second made her the offer of an asylum in france the circumstance of the dauphin's being betrothed to the queen of scots who claimed to precede elizabeth in the order of succession renders the motive of this invitation somewhat suspicious at all events it was one which she was never tempted to accept her letter did not obtain for the princess what she sought an interview with her sister and the next day being palm sunday strict orders were issued for all people to attend the churches and carry their palms and in the meantime she was privately removed to the tower attended by the earl of sussex and the other lord three of her own ladies three of the queen's and some of her officers 
several characteristic traits of her behaviour have been preserved. On reaching her melancholy place of destination, she long refused to land at Traitor's Gate, and when the uncourteous nobleman declared, quote, that she should not choose, end quote, offering her, however, at the same time his cloak to protect her from the rain, she retained enough of her high spirit to put it from her, quote, with a good dash, end quote. As she set her foot on the ill-omened stairs, she said, quote, here landeth as true a subject, being a prisoner, as ever landed at these stairs, and before thee, O God, I speak it, having no other friends but thee alone. On seeing the number of warders and other attendants drawn out in order, she asked, quote, What meaneth this? Someone answered that it was customary on receiving a prisoner. Quote, if it be, said she, I beseech you that for my cause they may be dismissed. Immediately the poor men kneeled down and prayed God to preserve her for which action they all lost their places the next day. Going a little further, she sat down on a stone to rest herself, and the lieutenant urging her to rise and come in out of the cold and wet, she answered, quote, Better sitting here than in a worse place, for God knoweth whither you bring me. On hearing these words, her gentleman Usher wept, for which she reproved him, telling him he ought rather to be her comforter, especially since she knew her own truth to be such that no man should have cause to weep for her. Then rising she entered the prison, and its gloomy doors were locked and bolted on her. Shocked and dismayed, but still resisting the weakness of unavailing lamentation, she called for her book, and devoutly prayed that she might build her house upon the rock. Meanwhile her conductors retired to concert measures for keeping her securely, and her firm friend the Earl of Sussex did not neglect the occasion of reminding all whom it might concern that their king their master's daughter was to be treated in no other manner than they might be able to justify whatever should happen hereafter and that they were to take heed to do nothing but what their commission would bear out. To this the others cordially assented, and having performed their office, the two lords departed. Having now conducted the heroine of the Protestant party to the dismal abode which she was destined for a time to occupy, it will be proper to revert to the period of Mary's accession. Little more than eight months had yet elapsed from the death of Edward, but this short interval had sufficed to change the whole face of the English court to alter the most important relations of the country with foreign states and to restore in great measure the ancient religion which it had been the grand object of the former reign finally and totally to overthrow it is the business of the historian to record the series of public measures by which this calamitous revolution was accomplished the humbler but not uninteresting task of tracing its effects on the fortunes of eminent individuals belongs to the compiler of memoirs and forms an appropriate accompaniment to the relation of the perils sufferings and obloquy through which the heiress of the english crown passed on safely to the accomplishment of her high destinies the liberation of the state prisoners confined in the tower an act of grace usual on the accession of a prince was one which the causes of detention of the greater part of them rendered it peculiarly gratifying to mary to perform the enemies of henry's or of edward's government she regarded with reason as her friends and partisans and the adherents open or concealed of that church establishment which was to be forced back on the reluctant consciences of the nation. The most illustrious of the captives was that aged Duke of Norfolk, whom the tyrant Henry had condemned to die without a crime, and who had been suffered to languish in confinement during the whole reign of Edward. Chiefly, it is probable, because the forfeiture of his vast estates afforded a welcome supply to the exhausted treasury of the young king, though the extensive influence of this nobleman and the attachment for the old religion which he was believed to cherish have served as plausible pretexts for his detention his high birth his hereditary authority his religious predilections were so many titles of merit in the eyes of the new queen who was also desirous of profiting by his abilities and long experience in all affairs civil and military 
without waiting for the concurrence of Parliament, she declared by her own authority his attainder irregular and null, restored to him such of his lands as remained vested in the crown, and proceeded to reinstate him in offices and honours. On August 10th he took his seat at the council-board of the eighth English monarch whose reign he had survived to witness. On the same day he was solemnly reinvested with the garter, of which he had been deprived on his attainder and a few days after he sat as lord high steward on the trial of that very duke of northumberland to whom not long before his friends and adherents had been unsuccessful suitors for his own liberation there is extant a remarkable order of council dated august twenty seventh of this year quote, for a letter to be written to the countess of surrey to send up to mountjoy place in london her youngest son and the rest of her children by the earl of surrey where they shall be received by the duke of norfolk their grandfather it may be conjectured that these young people were thus authoritatively consigned to the guardianship of the duke for the purpose of correcting the protestant predilections in which they had been educated and the circumstance seems also to indicate what indeed might be well imagined that little harmony or intercourse subsisted between this nobleman and a daughter-in-law whom he had formerly sought to deprive of her husband in order to form for him a new and more advantageous connection the eldest son of the earl of surrey now in the seventeenth year of his age was honoured with the title of his father, and he began his distinguished though unfortunate career by performing, as deputy to the Duke of Norfolk, the office of Earl Marshal at the Queen's coronation. On the first alarm of Wyatt's rebellion, the veteran Duke was summoned to march out against him, but his measures, which otherwise promised success, were completely foiled by the desertion of the London bands to the insurgents, and the last military expedition of his life was destined to conclude with a hasty and ignominious flight he soon after withdrew entirely from the fatigues of public life and after all the vicissitudes of court and camp palace and prison with which the lapse of eighty eventful years had rendered him acquainted calmly breathed his last at his own castle of framlingham in september fifteen fifty four three deprived bishops were released from the tower and restored with honour to their sees these were tonstall of durham garden of winchester and bonner of london tonstall many of whose younger years had been spent in diplomatic missions was distinguished in europe by his erudition which had gained him the friendship and correspondence of erasmus he was also mild charitable and of unblemished morals attached by principle to the faith of his forefathers but loath either to incur personal hazard or to sacrifice the almost princely emoluments of the see of durham he had contented himself with regularly opposing in the house of lords all the ecclesiastical innovations of edward's reign and as regularly giving them his concurrence when once established it was not therefore professedly on a religious account that he had suffered deprivation and imprisonment but on an obscure charge of having participated in some traitorous or rebellious design a charge brought against him in the opinion of most falsely and through the corrupt procurement of northumberland to whose project of erecting the bishopric of durham into a county palatine for himself the deprivation of tonstall and the abolition of the see by act of parliament were indispensable preliminaries this meek and amiable prelate returned to the exercise of his high functions without a wish of revenging on the protestants in their adversity the painful acts of disingenuousness which their late ascendancy had forced upon him during the whole of mary's reign no person is recorded to have suffered for religion within the limits of his diocese the mercy which he had shown he afterwards most deservedly experienced refusing on the accession of elizabeth to preserve his metre by a repetition of compliances of which so many recent examples of conscientious suffering in men of both persuasions must have rendered him ashamed he suffered a second deprivation but his person was only committed to the honourable custody of archbishop parker by this learned and munificent prelate the acquirements and virtues of tonstall were duly appreciated and esteemed 
he found at lambeth a retirement suited to his age his tastes his favourite pursuits by the arguments of his friendly host he was brought to renounce several of the grosser corruptions of popery and dying in the year fifteen sixty an honourable monument was erected by the primate to his memory with views and sentiments how opposite did gardiner and bonner resume the crozier a deep-rooted conviction of the truth and vital importance of the religious opinions which he defends supplies to the persecutor the only apology of which his foolish and atrocious barbarity admits and to men naturally mild and candid we feel a consolation in allowing it in all its force but by no particle of such indulgence should bonner or gardiner be permitted to benefit it would be credulity not candour to yield to either of these bad men the character of sincere though overzealous religionists true it is that they had subjected themselves to the loss of their bishoprics and to a severe imprisonment by a refusal to give in their renunciation of certain doctrines of the romish church but they had previously gone much further in compliance than conscience would allow any real catholic and they appear to have stopped short in this career only because they perceived in the council such a determination to strip them under one pretext or another of all their preferments as manifestly rendered further compliance useless both of them had policy enough to restrain them under such circumstances from degrading their characters gratuitously and depriving themselves of the merit of having suffered for a faith which might soon become again predominant they received their due reward in the favour of mary who recognised them with joy as the fit instruments of all her bloody and tyrannical designs to which gardiner supplied the crafty and contriving head bonner the vigorous and unsparing arm the proud wife of the protector somerset who had been imprisoned but never brought to trial as an accomplice in her husband's plots was now dismissed to a safe insignificance the marchioness of exeter against whom in henry's reign an attainder had passed too iniquitous for even him to carry into effect was also rescued from her long captivity, and indemnified for the loss of her property by some valuable grants from the new confiscations of the Dudleys and their adherents. The only state prisoner to whom the door was not opened on this occasion was Geoffrey Pole, that base betrayer of his brother and his friends, by whose evidence Lord Montacute and the Marquis of Exeter had been brought to an untimely end. It is some satisfaction to know that the commutation of death for perpetual imprisonment was all the favour which this wretch obtained from Henry that neither edward nor mary broke his bonds and that as far as appears his punishment ended only with his miserable existence not long however were these dismal abodes suffered to remain unpeopled the failure of the criminal enterprise of northumberland first filled the tower with the associates or victims of his guilt nearly the whole of the dudley family were its tenants for a longer or shorter time and it was another remarkable coincidence of their destinies which elizabeth in the after days of her power and glory might have pleasure in recalling to her favourite leicester that during the whole of her captivity in this fortress he also was included in the number of its melancholy inmates the places of tonstall gardiner and bonner were soon after supplied by the more zealous of edward's bishops holgate coverdale ridley and hooper and it was not long before the vehement latimer and even the cautious cranmer were added to their suffering brethren the queen made no difficulty of pardoning and receiving into favour those noblemen and others members of the privy council whom a base dread of the resentment of northumberland had driven into compliance with his measures in favour of jane grey wisely considering perhaps that the men who had submitted to be instruments of his violent and illegal proceedings would feel little hesitation in lending their concurrence to hers also on this principle the marquis of winchester and the earls of arundel and pembroke were employed and distinguished the last of these experienced courtiers making expiation for his past errors by causing his son lord herbert to divorce the lady catherine grey to whom it had so lately suited his political views to unite him sir james hale on the contrary that conscientious and upright judge 
who alone of all the privy councillors and crown lawyers had persisted in refusing his signature to the act by which mary was disinherited of the crown found himself unrewarded and even discountenanced the queen well knew what probably the judge was not inclined to deny that it was attachment not to her person but to the constitution of his country which had prompted his resistance to that violation of the legal order of succession and had it even been otherwise she would have regarded all her obligations to him as effectually cancelled by his zealous adherence to the church establishment of the preceding reign for daring to urge upon the grand juries whom he addressed in his circuit the execution of some of edward's laws in matter of religion yet unrepealed judge hales was soon after thrown into prison he endured with constancy the sufferings of a long and rigorous confinement aggravated by the threats and ill-treatment of a cruel jailer at length some persons in authority were sent to propound to him terms of release it is suspected that they extorted from him some concessions on the point of religion for immediately after their departure retiring to his cell in a fit of despair he stabbed himself with his knife in different parts of the body and was only withheld by the sudden entrance of his servant from inflicting a mortal wound bishop gardiner had the barbarity to insult over the agony or distraction of a noble spirit overthrown by persecution he even converted his solitary act into a general reflection against protestantism which he called quote, the doctrine of desperation some time after hales obtained his enlargement on payment of an arbitrary fine of six thousand pounds but he did not with his liberty recover his peace of mind and after struggling for a few months with an unconquerable melancholy he sought and found its final cure in the waters of a pond in his garden no blood except of principles was shed by mary on account of the proclamation of jane grey but she visited with lower degrees of punishment secretly proportioned to the zeal which they had displayed in the reformation of religion several of the more eminent partisans of this quote-unquote meek usurper the three tutors of king edward sir john cheek and dr cox were sufficiently implicated in this affair to warrant their imprisonment for some time on suspicion and all were eager on their release to shelter themselves from the approaching storm by flight cheek after confiscation of his estate obtained permission to travel for a given time on the continent strasburg was selected by cook for his place of exile the wise moderation of character by which this excellent person was distinguished seems to have preserved him from taking any part in the angry contentions of protestant with protestant exile with exile by which the refugees of strasburg and frankfort scandalized their brethren and afforded matter of triumph to the church of rome on the accession of elizabeth he returned with alacrity to reoccupy and embellish the modest mansion of his forefathers and quote, through the loopholes of retreat and quote, to view with honest exultation the high career of public fortune run by his two illustrious sons-in-law nicholas bacon and william cecil the enlightened views of society taken by sir anthony led him to extend to his daughters the noblest privileges of the other sex those which concern the early and systematic acquisition of solid knowledge through his admirable instructions their minds were stored with learning strengthened with principles and formed to habits of reasoning and observation which rendered them the worthy partners of great statesmen who knew and felt their value the fame, too, of these distinguished females has reflected back additional lustre on the character of a father who was wont to say to them in the noble confidence of unblemished integrity, quote, My life is your portion, my example your inheritance. Dr. Cox was quite another manner of man. Repairing first to Strasbourg, where the English exiles had formed themselves into a congregation using the liturgy of the Church of England, he went thence to Frankfurt, another city of refuge to his countrymen at this period where the intolerance of his zeal against such as more inclined to the form of worship instituted by the genevan reformer embarked him in a violent quarrel with john knox 
against whom on pretext of his having libelled the emperor he found means to kindle the resentment of the magistrates who compelled him to quit the city after this disgraceful victory over a brother reformer smarting under the same scourge of persecution with himself he returned to strasburg where he more laudably employed himself in establishing a kind of english university his zeal for the church of england his sufferings in the cause and his services to learning obtained for him from elizabeth the bishopric of ely but neither party enjoyed from this appointment all the satisfaction which might have been anticipated the courage perhaps the self-opinion of dr cox engaged him on several occasions in opposition to the measures of the queen and his narrow and persecuting spirit involved him in perpetual disputes and animosities which rendered the close of a long life turbulent and unhappy and took from his learning and grey hairs their due reverence the rapacity of the courtiers who obtained grant after grant of the lands belonging to his bishopric was another fruitful source to him of vexation and he had actually tendered the resignation of his see on very humiliating terms when death came to his relief in the year fifteen eighty one the eighty-second of his age if in this and a few other instances the polemical zeal natural to men who had sacrificed their worldly all for the sake of religion was observed to degenerate among the refugees into personal quarrels disgraceful to themselves and injurious to their noble cause it ought on the other hand to be observed that some of the firmest and most affectionate friendships of the age were formed amongst these companions in adversity and that by many who attained under elizabeth the highest preferments and distinctions the title of fellow-exile never ceased to be regarded as the most sacred and endearing bond of brotherhood other opportunities will arise of commemorating some of the more eminent of the clergy who renounced their country during the persecutions of mary but respecting the laity it may here be remarked that with the exception of catherine duchess dowager of suffolk not a single person of quality was found in this list of conscientious sufferers though one peer probably the earl of bedford underwent imprisonment on a religious account at home of the higher gentry however there were considerable numbers who either went and established themselves in the protestant cities of germany or passed away the time in travelling sir francis knowles whose lady was niece to anne boleyn took the former part residing with his eldest son at frankfort walsingham adopted the latter with the views of a future minister of state he visited in succession the principal courts of europe where he employed his diligence and sagacity in laying the foundations of that intimate knowledge of their policy and resources by which he afterwards rendered his services so important to his queen and country End of chapter six and a section eight